This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. We resume our series of studies in the book of Exodus this morning looking at chapter 14 verses 1 through 31. Hear the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of pi Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we've done? that we've let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. 
And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea. The water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so that the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Let's pray together. Our Father, open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your law. Father, as we study this passage, this description of your wonderful power to save, we pray, Father, that your Spirit would enable us to understand it, or to see its relevance to us, and that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever asked somebody... How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that when you die, you'll go to heaven? And they answered, because Jesus rose for me. Probably not. What most people would say, what most believers would say is, I believe I'm going to heaven because Jesus died for me. Which, of course, is true. But if all Jesus did is die for you, you are not going to heaven. If Jesus is still in the grave, then we have no salvation. Because Jesus not only died for you, Jesus was raised to new life for you. His resurrection guarantees the effectiveness of his atoning death for his people. As Paul argues at length in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ is not bodily, physically, in history, risen from the grave, then we're lost. Preaching is a waste of time, and we should eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. But of course, Christ is risen from the grave, Paul says. The first fruits, just the uh, the earnest on the coming resurrection at the return of Christ. You see, the two go together. The two work together. The two are essential. They are two sides of one coin, Jesus' saving work for us. Of course, you can add to that as well his life, his obedience under the law, for us as well. Now, as we look at this passage today, we see what in effect is the flip side of the coin from the Passover. We think of the Exodus from Egypt, 
uh, as we've been studying. We remember that Passover night when the Lord's destroying angel passed through Egypt and the firstborn in all the Egyptian homes died. The Hebrew homes were spared because they had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And so they were spared. The destroying angel passed over their homes. And, uh, of course, later the Lord requires a sacrifice of firstborn animals or a a redemption of firstborn uh, sons uh, to remember the fact that uh, the Lord redeemed them in that way. But the... Passover, the departure, the exodus out of Egypt was only part of their deliverance. And as we study this account of the crossing of the Red Sea here in Exodus 14, we see that the Red Sea is the flip side. It is the act of God that guarantees their salvation, that guarantees their deliverance from Egypt, because as we've read, that deliverance, that freedom, that rescue is very much in jeopardy here in this passage. Well, as we look at the passage, we want to study it under three headings. First of all, we want to think about the Lord's secret providence. The Lord's secret providence. We see that in the first nine verses. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. Uh, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now, these names, these places, are, are somewhat lost to us, at least in, in terms of any certainty of exactly where they are. Uh, earlier references made to Etham, the wilderness of Etham, is pretty much a known area, but these particular cities, you can't pinpoint them uh, definitively today, we can guess kind of where they were, but it really is beside the point. What's happening here is that the Lord is making Israel appear lost, appear that they don't know where they're going. Uh, verse 3, the reason for this, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. In other words, they've left Egypt, but they don't know where to go. They don't know where they're going. They're wandering around aimlessly. They're they're wandering around lost. And the Lord says in verse 4, and we're familiar with this, of course, after all of the plagues, the Lord says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. The Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord. And they did so. The Lord's secret providence here, we see Pharaoh, we see the chariots, we see the armies of Egypt going after Israel. And what we need to recognize is it was the Lord's doing. Was it Pharaoh? Yes. Was it his advisors? Yes. Was it the army? Yes. Was it the people of Egypt? Yes. But first and foremost, it's the Lord at work. And he did a couple of things that that caused Pharaoh to go after Israel. First, as we've read, he hardened his heart. Verse 4, the Lord hardened, I will, says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then again in verse 8, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly uh, with a high hand. In other words, uh not coweringly, not uh, meekly. Remember, they plundered Egypt. 
They've, they've won the victory. They're leaving. They are departing. But now Pharaoh is going after them. One of the reasons that he does that is the Lord is at work. He hardens his heart once again. Pharaoh would relent, at least to some degree, after each plague, but then would be rendered various ways. His heart was hardened. He hardened his heart. The Lord hardened his heart. Well, both times here, it's very specifically said, it very specifically says, the Lord hardened his heart so that he would pursue Israel. And he did also make Israel look like a tempting target. Uh, he had them sort of wandering around. Now, no doubt, Pharaoh had scouts, had people out giving reports what's going on. And Pharaoh said, they're out there lost. What, what have we done? We've, we've given up our free labor. They're out there wandering around. Well, let's go get them. That, that fear, perhaps some of the initial shock of the death of the firstborn, has worn off. And they start to think, uh, our, our free labor has just left the building. Let's go get them back. Yeah, much like a, a crippled minnow twitching on the surface of the water is bait to a bass. Yeah. Well, so Israel out twitching in the wilderness. Pharaoh finally couldn't resist it any longer. And he sends out his army after them. But what Israel didn't know when they see this going on is that this is the Lord's doing. Why? Well, he says in verse 4, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Same reason for the plagues. To defeat Egypt's gods. To defeat Egypt's king. To demonstrate that he is Lord, that he is God, and that the glory is, is his. And so the armies of Egypt, the chariots, the horses, which would have been uh, open structures, probably familiar, usually would carry two men, one to operate it, drive it, the other to fight. Although in this case, it may have had three uh, because it says that there were um, officers, verse 7, 600 chosen chariots, all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So uh, to, to indicate the seriousness, the intent with which Pharaoh was pursuing the Hebrews, uh, this, this vast army heading out. But again, it was the Lord's doing. Israel didn't know that, but we do because we read it. You know, that, that itself is instructive for us. We, we believe in God's providence, to be sure. But it's one thing to hold belief in the, in the good providence of God as a doctrinal precept. It's another thing when life is scary to recognize that the Lord is sovereign over all things. And we say, well, maybe, you know, the good things. Isaiah 45, 7, the Lord says, I make well-being and I create calamity. The word actually is evil. Now, God is not the author of evil. He's not the source of sin. And yet he is the one who says, I make well-being, I create calamity. It is in some way in his hands. Think, for example, book of Job, women's Bible study, studying the book of Job. Job chapters 1 and 2, that interaction between the Lord and Satan, where Satan challenges Job's faith, challenges his godliness, and says, well, of course, Lord, you, you protect him, you bless him, life is good, why shouldn't he serve you? But take it away from him, and you see how much he worships you. And the Lord gives Satan permission. Well, you can take away all he has, don't touch him, and that's exactly what happens. He loses his wealth, he loses his children. 
But he still serves the Lord, and Satan says, well, let me get at him. Let him hurt. Let him suffer some physical ailments. Let him hurt from head to toe. Let him be miserable, and you see how much he worships you. And the Lord says, okay, you can afflict his body, only don't take his life. And that's what the Lord does. And then Job suffers from these boils and just this pain, and he's scraping himself just in pain. And even his wife says, come on, Job, just give it up, curse God, and die, be done with it. And Job says, no, shall we accept Good from the Lord and not evil. And since that's what's going on here, Satan is going after the Hebrews. Satan is going after God's people through the Egyptians to destroy them, to bring them back into slavery, to break them, to take away their newfound freedom. And yet, as with Job, the Lord is sovereign over it. God cannot be charged with evil. But he is able to use evil without being touched by it. He's able to use sin sinlessly. He's able to bring both well-being and calamity. The Lord's secret providence. Where do you need to be reminded of that in your life? What are those things that are frightening you? Maybe they're relational. Maybe they're financial. Whatever it might be. You need to recognize, even in the bad things, God is sovereign. The Lord's secret providence is at work. What Egypt, or rather what Israel, couldn't see was what the Lord had in store for Egypt that looked so fierce, so frightening, so terrifying. Well, then that brings us to the second point, second heading we want to look at. First, the Lord's secret providence there over Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not in charge. The Lord is. Pharaoh was motivated. He did what he chose to do, what he wanted to do. But ultimately, the Lord is behind it, as he is behind all things. Second thing we want to look at here, look at is the Lord's miraculous deliverance. And we see that in verses 10 through 22. Israel starts hearing a rumbling. And they look in the distance and say they see the dust cloud, you know, in the sky. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. They were terrified. You ever had that? Feeling of going from elation to to terror, uh, that roller coaster drop of your heart to suddenly recognize things aren't good, they're all wrong. Well, that's exactly what they experience. They're free, they're heading out, but then they hear the thunder of hoofbeats and rolling chariots, and they're terrified, and the people cry out to the Lord. That's good. Verse 11, they said to Moses, however, what's the matter, Moses? No graves in Egypt to bring us out in the wilderness to die here. By the way, this is the first rendition of a song that they will sing repeatedly uh, as they get into the wilderness. And and you're familiar with that. They sort of immediately start to develop this better view of life in Egypt than actually was. Well, here's the first first verse of it. Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? Just sarcasm here. You brought us out here to die? Well, there's something to that. Egypt had a a fascination, an obsession with death, with the afterlife. Egypt, when you think Egypt, you think what? All pointy things. Pyramids. What are the pyramids? Graves. Just big graves. Not enough graves in Egypt. Egypt was known for its graves, for its obsession with death. Not enough graves in Egypt, Moses. You bring us out here to die in the wilderness. What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? 
Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? You know, just leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. Be better to serve the Egyptians, be in slavery, be in bondage, than die out here in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Don't be afraid. Stand firm, which often was used in a military context of an army. Stand. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. With the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses has come a long way. Don't be afraid. You just stand, you stay put. Stand firm and wait and watch and see what the Lord is going to do on your behalf. So you see their fear. Moses reassures them, and then you see their rescue. Chapter, or verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward toward the sea. Lift up your staff, that same staff that the Lord used as a symbol of his might, of his power through Moses to bring about the plagues. He now says, lift up this staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, just as you stretched it out over Egypt. Divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Now, we've all read this. We've all seen the Cecil B. DeMille movie. You know, we, we know how it works, right? Of course. Well, like, certainly go toward the sea. Moses is going to hold out his staff. The sea's going to part, and you're going to walk through on dry ground. What if you'd never read this? What if you'd never seen the movie? And you get the instruction to start moving toward the sea because the sea is going to split open, and you're going to walk through it. It sounds nuts. It sounds crazy. What kind of plan is that? Well, instead of Egypt getting us, we'll just march into the Red Sea and do ourselves in. Notice what the Lord says, verse 17. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh, all his hosts, chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 19, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, angel of God, angel of the Lord, often seen as as God himself, particularly the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Uh, John 12 seems to point to that being the case in Isaiah, that it was Jesus whom Isaiah saw exalted and lifted up. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and, and went behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. God is protecting them. He comes between the Israelites and their enemy. And there was the cloud and the darkness that lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So the Lord goes between to separate, to enable his people to escape, to enable them to be able to uh, leave, cross during the night. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right, hand and on their left. What was this sea? It says the Red Sea, traditionally, that's, that's what we think of, what we refer to. The Hebrew actually uh, refers to the Sea of Reeds. Um, we don't know for sure exactly where they were. It could be one of those arms of the Red Sea that goes up, uh, that they crossed over. 
Uh, the point is that they passed through water that was otherwise uh, impassable. Uh, and the Lord causes wind to blow, which itself, wind, is a natural phenomenon. But what happened is very clearly a supernatural phenomenon. The Lord used the wind in order to create this channel of dry land through the sea, to hold the sea at bay, so that Israel could pass through. And that's exactly what they do. This wind blows, the waters are divided, and the people of Israel go through the sea on dry ground. And the wall, the water is a wall to them on either side, probably some distance to enable them all to pass through. Uh, it also served as a wall to prevent Israel from flank or Egypt from uh, flanking them and getting around them. But they passed through between these two walls of water and passed to the other side. So we see here the deliverance of the Lord, their fear, Moses reassurance, and then their rescue as they are evacuated from one side of the sea to the other on dry ground. They're able to pass through to walk through. This is a supernatural event, not a natural occurrence. So the Lord used a natural means to bring it about. A couple things to consider. Israel was totally passive in this. They were utterly helpless before the army of Egypt. And as Moses said, you be still, you just watch and you will see that the Lord will fight for you. The Lord will act on your behalf to deliver you. All you have to do is stay put and then do as instructed. The Lord himself will fight for you. God acting, doing for his people what they could not do for themselves. And also notice the reason for it. God obviously wanted to save his people, but notice the the higher motivation for it. I will get glory over Pharaoh, all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. I'm God. I am the one true and living deity, not all of their gods of death or nature or Pharaoh himself or whatever. Two things, the helplessness of God's people and the glory of the Lord in their deliverance. Is that not true of our salvation? Is that not true of that greater deliverance that Christ has won for us that this points to? that God did for us what we in our helplessness could not do for ourselves. That Christ lived under the law, perfect obedience, couldn't do that for ourselves, haven't done that for ourselves. That he died on the cross, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, burying in himself in that time on the cross, an eternity's worth of hell for each person who ever would trust in him, and then rising from the dead on the third day, winning that victory, securing our salvation, guaranteeing our own future resurrection. See, we have here depicted our own redemption and God fighting for us and God winning this battle for us that we could not win for ourselves and all to his glory. What do we have that we haven't received? It's not by works. No man can boast. Even the faith that we exercise in Christ is itself a gift from God that you give thanks to him for, that you praise him for. We don't credit ourselves that we were smart enough to understand the gospel or that we were religious enough, religious enough to be in church. And so we heard the gospel or that we did anything at all because we can't. God acted to do for us what we could not do for ourselves in Christ. And the glory, my dear friends, is all his and his alone. The Lord's miraculous deliverance of his people. But then we also see in the last part of the chapter, the the Lord's terrifying judgment on Egypt. Verse 23, the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. 
the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. You have to wonder what they were thinking. You know, look at this. This isn't right. This isn't normal. And maybe they thought, oh, well, you know, they went in. We'll go too. And so they did. And verse 24, in the morning watch, morning has come. The Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians say, we need to flee because the Lord is fighting for them. They're thinking back on these plagues. And they see that the Lord, by the way, the covenant name for God, Yahweh, is used there. They've gotten very familiar with Yahweh as Egypt was in tatters. The Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Now it's the Egyptians' turn to be terrified. Now terror has come to the enemies of God's people, to the enemies of the Lord. And the Lord simply instructs Moses, stretch out your hand back over the sea, that the water would do so. And it does. The water comes back together. And it crushes and it drowns the Egyptians in the middle of it. No one remained who had gone into the sea. The people of Israel walked on dry ground. They were rescued. The Egyptians were destroyed. All Israel saw of them was the dead bodies that washed up on the shore. Just like that, the mightiest military force in the world was destroyed was rendered inoperable, was made a non-factor. It's it's staggering to think how quickly this whole thing turned around. That what looked like certain slavery, if not certain death, suddenly is, is life, suddenly is deliverance. That the Lord brought them out, they were terrified of the Israelites, were terrified of them, but the Lord brought them out to destroy them. How quickly the Lord is able to turn things around, but we see this terrifying judgment here. That's their turn to be afraid. And then instead of deliverance, we see the, the destruction of Egypt, of its forces here in the Red Sea as they're buried under the waters, bodies washing ashore the next day. Verses 30 and 31 kind of serve as an epilogue to just sum it up and pull it to a close. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. And you really have the gospel right there because there's only one of two possible ends. Either you die under the judgment of the Lord or you live by the grace of the Lord. That's the only two options in these two verses. Which is it with you? Are you an Egyptian or are you an Israelite? Are you an enemy of the Lord Are you one of his people? Are you experiencing and going to experience the judgment and wrath of God? Or have you experienced by his grace the deliverance of the Lord through Christ? Our Moses, living, dying, and being raised to life for you. You see, the Red Sea sealed the deal. After the Lord brought them through, Egypt was no longer a factor for them. Now, you'll know later in their history, Egypt continued to be a thorn in their flesh, and the temptation to look to Egypt for military alliance and all that kind of thing was a problem. But in terms of their being brought back into Egypt, brought back into slavery, the Red Sea sealed the deal. It guaranteed their freedom. Pharaoh could not come after them any anymore. Just as Christ's resurrection sealed the deal of our salvation, death was destroyed. The grave was 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 defeated. 
as Christ comes out. So yes, we're saved because Jesus died for us. We're saved because Jesus rose for us as well. Just as the Israelites came out of Egypt, they also came through the Red Sea. But which are you? Are you part of Egypt or part of Israel? Are you under the wrath of God? Are you one of those who are redeemed by God? You see, either way, whether in your destruction or, I pray, in your salvation, God will get the glory. Let's pray. Father, we praise you because you are a God who saves, because you are a God who fights for your people, and you won the victory for us, not at the Red Sea, but in the empty tomb. Father, we thank you for a Savior who died for us. We thank you for a Savior who rose for us, guaranteeing our salvation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.